It's been a joy to have Dr. John Collier with us for these four days now, and uh, we've been challenged and stirred and blessed by his messages, and we're looking forward to hearing him preach again tonight. I'd rather hear him preach than eat. I've heard him, I've heard him eat, so I'd rather hear him preach than... But uh, we're looking forward to it tonight. You listen carefully as he comes and preaches for us. John's Gospel, chapter 19. The song service tonight has gone right along with what God has laid on my heart to, to preach tonight. And uh, I always enjoy that when you and God and I are all on the same page. Uh, it works out really well. But uh, good to have some folks from Texas here tonight, uh, from Gatesville, Texas. And that's just south of, uh, of Waco. I guess, what, hour and 15 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that, from Waco to Gatesville. And uh, halfway... Between there is a little town of McGregor, and they got a coffee cup cafe there that's really good. And uh, that's how you judge in Texas is what kind of restaurants do they have uh, in their town. And uh, but I'm glad to, he's with Rock of Ages Prison Ministry, and so he stays in jail about half the time. But. Uh, so glad to have, have them here in the service tonight. Uh, they were up to see the ark. Is, is it not working again? I'm on, what am I on? Oh, all right. Hush, I got it. <laughs> Don't you wish we could go back to the old days when you didn't have microphones and preachers had to have preacher voices to preach? Amen. Amen. And uh, that's, that'd be a good, good thing. You know, I, over these years, have come to several conclusions about ministry and about our walk with God and what it takes to serve Him, what it takes to please Him in our lives. And one of the things that I have in very recent years began to realize is that we have to have a reason for what we do or don't do. There are two great motivating forces. Fear and love. And the amazing thing is both of those motivating forces God uses in our lives. The motivation of fear. The writer of the Hebrews said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think one of the areas that people get confused about is the nature of our God. You read through the entire Bible and you'll not get the same picture that churches and preachers are portraying our God as. God is love. Never forget that. But love is not soft. Matter of fact, love's extremely tough. A good parent doesn't give their children all they want. They provide what their children need, even if the child does not like that. I, uh, and I'll just throw this out, has nothing to do with what I'm preaching tonight. I have watched again over time and 
In our society today, parents want to be their child's friend, not their parent. They don't need any more friends. They need a mom and dad with their head on straight, walking with God so they can lead their children to do the same. I was preaching in uh, West Virginia some years ago. And my wife asked me if I would go to the grocery store. I hate that. Uh, I still don't like, my wife's been in heaven now for over seven years. I still don't like going to the grocery store. But she gave me the list. And you know, the thing is, at home, when, I, when I'm at home, uh, I, I go to an HEB grocery store. And these folks know what I'm talking about. It is a God-given grocery store. That, my children, when they come home uh, to Waco to visit, Daddy, can we go to the grocery store? They just love to go to H-E-B. But anyway, uh, when you're an evangelist and you're in a town that you're not in all the time, you don't know where things are in the grocery store. And, and you just have to go up and down the stinking aisles till you finally find what you're looking for. Well, I'm pushing this basket and I'm looking down every aisle. I'm trying to read signs. I want to get in and out of there as quick as I can. And I looked down this aisle and, and, I, and I saw something and I kept going and I said, no, I got to look at that again. I made a U-turn, came back and I looked down there and I saw a teenage girl, and either her grandmother or her great-grandmother. And the girl had on short shorts and these boots. And grandma had the same thing on. You know, back then they called them go-go boots. Well, her should have been went-went because she had gone gone a long time ago. And I, I looked and I sort of chuckled a little bit, but then I thought, how sad that is. Grandma doesn't have any more sense than she does. And if that young lady ever needs somebody to talk to, she's not going to grandma, she's crazy as she is. She needs somebody who has their head on straight and knows God and knows how to lead her. And by the way, your children will rise up and call you blessed if you'll be that godly parent that they need. Okay, that message is gone now. All right, we'll get back. It's a fearful thing, the Bible says, to fall into the hands of the living God. God not only is love, but He is also righteous. He is also holy. He is also a God who can be angered. He is also that God that one day will take everyone who has not been born again by faith in the Lord Jesus, He's going to take them, and the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, He is going to cast them, He's going to hurl them into the lake of fire. That's a God that everybody talks about. He's just sort of like an old grandfather sitting in a cane bottom rocking chair up on the porch in glory and just rocking back and forth and letting the world just do whatever they want to. He is absolutely holy. And I'll be up front with you. I fear him. I fear him. You remember as you read in the Book of the Revelation, John said, I, I, he was talking about an angelic or a, a heavenly being. He said, I fell at his feet as dead men. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when we see God himself in the person of Jesus Christ sitting on that throne in heaven? We won't be clicking our heels and popping our chewing gum and, and coming in and never paying any attention to bring our heart into a solemn assembly as we come before the God of the universe to meet with Him. 
But then the motivation of love. You and I, none of us would be here tonight if God didn't love us. You and I, every day of our life, we are the recipients of the love of God. He demonstrates that love. He illustrates that love. He provides that love for us. And so we serve who or what we fear the most. You know why sometimes in public school, and I'm sad to say in Christian schools, that children, young people have trouble carrying their Bible and outwardly take a stand for God because they fear their peers more than they fear God. Why dads and moms don't give a witness on their job is because they fear those who they work for and those who they work with more than they fear the God of the Bible. So it's who or what we fear the most or who or what we love the most. We have sung that song each night. Oh, how he loves you and me. I wonder sometime maybe we ought to add a stanza to that and ask ourselves, Oh, how much do I love thee? What is my love gauge towards you? Is it on full? Is it on empty? Is it half full, quarter full, three quarters full? How much do we love him? You know how you gauge what, how much you love him? It's how much you're obedient to him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience. Songwriter said obedience is the very best way to prove that you believe. Doing exactly what God wants you to do it and doing it quickly when God speaks. In John's Gospel, chapter 19, we're going to come to verses 25, 26, and 27 in a few moments. Prior to what we're going to read in a few moments, so much has transpired and what we refer to as the Passion Week of Jesus. The last week of His life here on earth prior to the crucifixion. He has been with His disciples, His apostles, family and friends. He has been betrayed by a man who had walked with him for three and a half years and had witnessed every miracle that John and Peter and James, those miracles that he did, the dead that he raised to life again. I, I, I've often said to people, you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and you'll find Jesus never attended a successful funeral. He raised the dead every time he showed up. Why? Because he is life. Remember what he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that liveth and believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. If they had funeral directors back in those days, I, I imagine they hated it when Jesus would show up. Have you ever wondered, I don't know, I just thought about this, but have you ever wondered why Jesus waited four days when Mary and Martha sent for him because Lazarus was sick? Have you ever wondered why he waited four days? Let me tell you why. 
Jews do not count a person as literally being dead until after three days and three nights. So Jesus threw in an extra day just to make sure they knew he's dead. As a matter of fact, he was so dead, remember they said, he stinks now. I've met some alive people that stink now. Jesus performs miracles. Jesus does the supernatural. And the amazing thing is, Jesus does it in a natural way. It's just every day to Him. But Jesus had found His way to a very familiar place. A place called Gethsemane. If you and I were standing on the Temple Mount area in the old city of Jerusalem, really looking toward the east. You would look over the wall and you could see the Kidron Valley and then you'd see the graves that are there and have been there for centuries and then you'd look across and the terrain begins to go up and that is the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is really quite large. Not extremely high, but long. Jesus oftentimes would go through Gethsemane on his way to Bethany. The city of Bethany is on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives, and now there's a road that goes around, and if you go there, it's the tour, you take your bus and you go there. Not many tourists get to go there anymore because it's in the West Bank, and sometimes there's some unrest there, and you just don't go where there's unrest. But Jesus would walk over the Mount of Olives through Gethsemane, make his way into Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. But this time he, he stops in Gethsemane. This next March we're taking our seventh trip to the land of our Lord. and I think I have 53 people going with us. That's 106 suitcases. But one of my favorite places in Israel is Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, there's a section that is walled off and gates in it. We have it to ourselves, that little section of Gethsemane. Some of those olive trees that are even there now date back to the days of our Lord. We have about an hour in there. And couples can go and find one of those olive trees and they can kneel there and they can spend time reading the Scripture and praying together just as the disciples did with Jesus at this time. He takes Peter, James, and John and he takes them a little further into the garden and he said... Will you go pray with me? Can you imagine, honestly think about it, can you imagine the Son of God asking you, will you go pray with me? And in reality, He does ask us that. He tells us that. He commands us that. In His Word, that we are always to pray and not faint. And if He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us, then we know that He is going to be with us when we pray. You see, we have a personal God. We have one that wants to hear us pray. Sometimes we don't even know. Have you realized that sometimes you don't really know how to pray? You don't know what to say. Boy, I have trouble with this sometimes when I go to the hospital and somebody's really sick. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if God wants to make them well or if God's going to take them to heaven. I don't know really how to pray. And so I just say, Lord, have your will in this situation. Give peace where it's necessary, Lord. We would love for you to heal them, but not our will, but thine be done. Jesus goes further from them and he begins to pray and he comes back in a while and they're asleep. 
He wakes them up. This always convicts me. Could you not pray with me one hour? One hour? Man, after 15 or 20 minutes, I'm tired. Y'all hearing what I'm saying? An hour? He goes back. They go back to sleep. But Jesus goes. Now listen to me very carefully. I believe in my heart of hearts that the victory of the cross was won in Gethsemane. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in prophecy, nowhere in the Gospels do you find where God the Father ever made God the Son die for us. Let me me share something with you. You and me being born again is not the reason Jesus came. Not the reason Jesus lived, not the reason He died, not the reason He rose again from the dead. You look at it in the Scripture, the reason Jesus came is because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved mankind so much that He had to provide a way that He could take them to heaven. And because of our absolute total sinfulness, there is never anything so good that we could ever do or a multiplicity of things that we could do that could ever be added up or multiplied that God could say, you finally did it, and I'll take you to heaven. Impossible! And so God the Father, condemning the whole human race to death, Separation from Him. That bridge had to be built. Had to be provided. Had to be made. And if I can picture in your mind this, it was God the Father in heaven, you and I as sinful human beings on earth. And when Jesus said, Not my will, but thine be done, and He went to the cross... He took the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and He paid for my sinfulness in His body and He applied the holiness of God to my account. And now when I put my faith in Him, God counts me as righteous. I don't have any righteousness. Neither do you. It's His righteousness. It's imputed. It's placed on our account. That's why the songwriter put it in such a wonderful way, should I at the gates of heaven appear to answer the challenge, what claim hast thou here? What hast thou to offer? Yea, what is thy plea? With blessed assurance my answer will be, all that I have is Jesus. All that I have is Jesus. God's going to say, that's good enough. That's good enough. The Bible says that he was so intense in his praying and so bothered in his spirit. And you understand, and what I'm about to tell you, I believe 100%, 100%, but I don't understand it 10%. And that is that Jesus was all man and Jesus was all God. He was the God-man. He was not the man who became God. He was the God who became man. Big difference. And that God-man said, Oh, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but thine be done. He wasn't asking God to keep him from dying. You have to understand, he was perfect and holy and sinless. 
And he was about to take into his flesh the sins of the entire human race. And that spiritually was going to separate him from the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He comes back and he says to Peter, James, and John, sleep on. It's now accomplished. And Judas comes back with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the army of Caesar sent there by Pilate. And they arrest Jesus. They take him to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and they bring in witnesses to witness against him, and they can't even get their story straight. They slap Jesus around. And I want you to think about this. In the next few moments, things I'm going to say was not done just to a man. It was to the Son of God. It was done to that one the Bible says that without Him was not anything made that was made. All things were made by Him. He's the Creator. And that person called a human being was doing it to the one who made him. The Son of God. Songwriter said he could have called 10,000 angels. Do you realize he didn't need one angel? You remember what he said? He said, no man takes my life. I willingly lay it down a ransom for men. When he cried from the cross and he said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Literally what he was saying is, I'm going to allow myself to die now. They didn't take his life. He gave it. He gave his life. Sometime around sunrise, they took Jesus from the house of Caiaphas across the Temple Mount area to the place called the Fortress of Antonio. That was Pilate's residence. And again, they bring all these accusations against him. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. You want me to crucify him? He's done nothing worthy of death? Yes, but if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. Guess what? Pilate was more afraid of Caesar than he was of Jesus. They take Jesus down to the place called the pavement. I've stood there on six occasions. You see in the floor, you see where they played the game of kings. They take Jesus and they... Now think about this. When you see a crucifix today, Jesus has a loincloth on. You have to understand, the Jews were not scourging Jesus and the Jews were not crucifying Jesus. They did not politically have that power and authority to do that. It was the Romans that were doing it. And the Romans brought as much shame and embarrassment to a prisoner as possible. They stripped Jesus nude. The Son of God. The God-man. The man that could by his own will destroyed every one of them. But as a lamb before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The Romans would tie a leather strap around each wrist and around each ankle and then between two pillars they would suspend the prisoner. The whole exterior of his body was open. 
A Roman soldier trained in scourging would take what they call the Roman cat of nine tails, a piece of wood three to four foot long, attached nine leather straps six to eight feet long. And toward the end of those leather straps, they would slice it open and put in a piece of rock or bone or pottery or lead. And then with that whole body exposed, that Roman soldier would take that Roman cat of nine tails and would lash the body of the prisoner and those leather straps would come around and when they'd hit, he would jerk it and set those sharp objects in the flesh and then give it a rip and rip the flesh literally away from the skeleton. The Jewish historian Josephus, he said that many prisoners given over to crucifixion never reached crucifixion because they died from the scourging. Josephus said there were times when a man would be so lacerated that his insides would fall out on the floor. Times when they would lodge that into the spinal column, give it a jerk, sever the spinal column, and death would be instantaneous. If he was beaten by the Jews, there would be 40 stripes save one, 39, because under the law, they could only beat them 40 stripes. So to make sure that they didn't break the law, they'd only do it 39 times. But the Romans did it. They would give a scourging till a announced number would be met. The prisoner would die, or somebody would say stop. We're not told how many times they beat the Son of God, how many stripes they laid on him. We're given some indication of the severity, though. Isaiah chapter 52 says his visage was so marred that he did not look like a man. Body ripped to shreds. They took him down set him on a mock throne, put a scarlet robe in mockery around him. A soldier had gone out and found a thorn bush and broke a limb off and made a crown of thorns and placed it on his head, and I'm sure not real kindly. They put a reed, a stick in his hand, and that was his scepter, and they began to mock him. You're a king. They would hit him, prophesy, and tell us who hit you. The Bible says they took that reed out of his hand and smote him on the head. Again, Josephus talked about the skin pulling down over the eyes as the thorns came down through the scalp. A Roman soldier went up and grabbed his beard and plucked it out by the roots. And then the Bible just simply says they crucified him. Two other with him, Jesus in the midst. I don't know this, but I think maybe the two thieves with him, I'm, I'm sure they fought. I don't think Jesus did. I know his body is racked with pain, but I think he is that sacrificial lamb laid down on that cross and just put his arms out. Eventually he was going to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A nail in each hand, a spike in his feet, they bring that cross up, let it fall in that hole with a thud and all of his body weight on a nail in each hand and a spike in his feet. Again, historian says that many people given over to crucifixion, the nails and the spike would take a long time to kill them. What happened to them is they would asphyxiate. They would die from a lack of oxygen because all their weight was on those nails and that spike in order to breathe, they had to push up. 
get a breath and then go down and their diaphragm would mash on their lungs and the air would leave their body. You remember they said the Jews told the Romans, hey, don't let them be on the cross on this high Sabbath. So they came and they broke the legs of the two thieves. Why? So they couldn't push up and get air so they would die more quickly. But when they came to Jesus, He had already dismissed His Spirit. So that a Scripture would be fulfilled, not a bone of His body was broken. I don't take time tonight to talk about the last seven utterances of Christ from the cross. That's a whole series. But I want you to look at verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took him, took her to his own home. Every time I read this, every time I restudy it, every time I read about the crucifixion, I ask myself why were there only three ladies and a 19-year-old young man by the name of John standing right by the cross where Jesus could see him? Where are the multitudes? Where are those after three and a half years of going all over Galilee, all over the southern part? Where's those, some of those 5,000 he fed in Galilee? Where's some of those family members that he raised their loved one from the dead? Where's some of those lepers? Because of that sin or disease of leprosy, they couldn't even go home. They couldn't be with their wife and children. They couldn't be with neighbors. They had to live by themselves. They had to cry out with somebody to get too close and say, unclean, unclean. And Jesus said, be you whole. And they were well. They had their family back. They had their job, their vocation back. They were able to go to temple. But they're not there. Before we're too critical, I think we need to ask ourselves personally, where am I? Am I willing to be identified at the mall, at the restaurant, in the classroom, in the office, am I willing to be identified with that one who said, Father, forgive them? In other words, how much do I really love Him? You know, I don't think, Pastor, I don't think when we stand in heaven that we'll say to God the Father, I wish I'd loved Jesus less. I wish I hadn't been so faithful to church. Are y'all hearing anything I'm saying? I wish I'd given less. I wish I hadn't spent so much on missionaries. I wish I hadn't handed out so many tracts. No, I think we're going to say, oh God, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd loved Him more. See, it, it, it's one thing for us to say we love Jesus. It's another thing to love Him. Now, 
Don't hit your husband with an elbow, all right? But I wonder how strong the marriage would be if the love you have for your husband or your wife is the same type of love that you have for Jesus and how you show it. He deserves it. They do too, most of the time. He does all the time. All the time. Jesus looks down and He says to Mary, now never forget this, she was His mother. She was never the mother of God. She was the mother of the Jesus. She was the vehicle that God used to bring Christ into this world. But notice there, He did not call her mother. He called her woman. Now Jesus loved her more than I loved my mother. He wasn't degrading her to say woman. Again, He's God on the cross. He knew that there was going to arise years later a damnable heresy whereby people felt they'd go to heaven through Mary. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not Mary. It's Jesus. But he wasn't degrading her. Really, I think what he was doing is he was, he was breaking off all filial relationships. In essence, he was saying this, Mary, if you need a son... You can't look to me. I'm now becoming the sacrifice. I'm now paying so you can go to heaven. But if you need a son, you'll have to look to John. Because he turns to that disciple whom he loved, John the Beloved, and he said, Behold thy mother. Mary was not his mother. Mary was not his aunt. Mary was not a cousin. John, John, if, if I wasn't on this cross, son, you'd go to hell. John, I'm up here on this cross because I want you to go to heaven. And so all I'm going to ask you to do, John, is would you do what I would do if I were there, I'd take care of Mary. I'd make sure she had food to eat, place to live, robes to wear. I'd take care of her. But John, I'm taking care of you. Will you take care of her? I believe that's what Jesus asked of every believer, every truly born-again person, would you just do in the lives of others what you can do that I lead you to do, but would you obey me and represent me in the lives of other people? I substituted for you. Will you substitute for me? It all boils down honestly, to our love. How much do we love Him? Remember that old saying, talk is cheap? Yeah. To say I love you is easy. To love is more difficult. I took your place. Will you take my place? Let me ask you this. Don't answer out loud. Have you noticed in our society that we love everything? You know, we had lunch today and I love that fried rice. (laughs) 
Y'all hear what I'm saying? We love everything. Mashed potatoes. I love those. Gravy. Mm. I feel like one old boy said he was 18 and 19 years old before he realized gravy wasn't a beverage. <laughs> Just guzzle the gravy. We love so much. The last chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? He had just eaten. Jesus had provided a meal. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter answered, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my sheep. What would Jesus, the shepherd, do if he were here? He'd feed the sheep. He'd do what a shepherd's supposed to do. What a person serving is supposed to do. Jesus then asked him again, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. Third time. Peter's sort of exasperated now. But you know why? You look it up. There are four words in the Scripture that our English Bible translates L-O-V-E. One is the word eros. It's where we get the word erotic. That's where most relationships are based on. Physical love. It's a total selfish love. That's what happens. You know, I call it a Hollywood love. I love you as long as you love me, but if you don't love me, I'm not going to love you. As long as you make me happy, as long as you please me, I'm going to love you, but if you don't, nah, we're finished. We're gone. I'll get somebody else. That's eros. Then there's the word storge. It means affection. Friendship on a deeper sense. But then there's the word phileo. P-H-I-L-E-O. So we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But then there's the word agape. Agape, and this is Collier's definition, but it's biblical. Agape love is loving someone totally, completely, without expecting anything in return. It's totally a selfless love. That is John 3.16, For God so agape the world that He did what? Gave. Agape is a giving love. If no one would have ever been saved, listen to me, Jesus would have still come and died. Because God loved. And God gave. When Jesus spoke to Peter, He said, Peter, do you agape me? Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I phileo thee. You know I'm your friend. Second time, Peter, do you agape me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest I phileo thee. Lord, I am your friend. But then Jesus the third time condescends. Peter, do you really phileo me? Are you really my friend? How would you and I answer that question from Jesus tonight? You think he would be pleased if we say, Yea, Lord, I phileo thee. You think he'd be happy if we were his friend? I think so. I think he'd be ecstatic if we say, Lord, I love you more than anything or anybody. And no matter the circumstances of my life, I'm going to love you. I'm going to be true to you. I'm going to walk with you. Peter, Love us, thou me. Let's bow our heads in prayer.
Fear will motivate us not to love. God hath not given us the spirit of fear. So that fear that stops us from loving and serving God is not of the Lord. We've got to say no to that and yes and make that decision. Only you know. Only you know if you need to decide tonight as never before to either commit yourself to absolute agape love for Christ or you need to renew that. I heard a story many years ago about an older, older couple that got married and after they were married, the new husband said to his wife, you know I love you? She said, yes. He said, okay, let's don't ever bring that up again. I'm going to tell you something. I enjoyed telling Virginia, I love you. I'm grateful for you. I praise God for you. I wish I had her here to tell her that again in person. But I do have Jesus in person. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. Tonight ought to be where you and I once again say, Lord Jesus, I so love you. We're going to stand and pastor's going to take the invitation, but I think maybe, and I don't want to use the word fall, that's accidental, but tonight on purpose we need to tell Jesus how much we love Him tonight. But mean it because now that love will need to be demonstrated in your walk, in your talk, and in your service. Father, speak to our hearts tonight. Lord, on this last night of this meeting, may this be a service that could take this church into a new rise a new working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of her people, O oh God. May it be so.